This message is entitled, What is God Like? Part 1, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Now, today, we come to another major area of theology, entitled, Theology Proper. We have gone through prolegomena, in which we discuss what is theology and how do you study theology. We then moved into bibliology and discussed revelation, general and special, inspiration, and interpretation, illumination. Now we move to the next area of theology proper, where we will begin with a study of the attributes of God, or what God is like. I feel somewhat like a honey bear that is facing an entire ocean of honey, and I really don't know where to start. Because in the topic of the attributes of God, to me, you have absolutely the richest raw materials for Christian living that is available in all the world. I am very excited about the subject, what is God like, or what do you think about God? So maybe the place to begin is with a simple question, namely, how much can you trust a person? you'll think about that for a few moments, I think most of you would come up with an answer similar to this, that ultimately you can trust a person as much as you know him. You can only trust a person as much as you know him. So that to the extent that you really know a person, to that same extent you're able to trust him. The same thing that's true between people is true between man and God. It's good to know God's promises. And it's exciting to become aware of God's program for the future. But these are only meaningful to the extent that you know God's person. The promises and the program of God will only be vital to you to the extent that you know the person of God. Because an unknown God can neither be trusted or served or worshipped. And it's that kind of truth that Daniel was seeking to get across to the Israelites when he said in chapter 11 and verse 32, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. For Jesus Christ put it this way in John 17 and verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is, eternal life is not merely the compounding endlessly of years. I'm afraid that sometimes we give that impression when we talk about eternity, that eternity is just endless years of time. But God doesn't speak about it that way. 
God speaks of eternal life as a new kind of living. And that's why he could say in John 10, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And he's not talking about longer periods of it. But he's talking about quality. So eternal life is a quality of living. It's a kind of living. And interestingly enough, even after Paul had known Christ for decades of time, he still could say in one of his prison epistles, but what things were gained to me, those things I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may know him. So that in Paul's maturing years in a prison cell, he was still interested in coming to know Christ, coming to know what God is really like. There is the secret of the victorious life. Now, no religion has ever been any greater than its idea of God, and that obviously follows from what we've said formerly. And more particularly, no life has ever been any greater than its understanding of God. That's why it's so basic to think right about God. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, made the statement, it is my deep-seated conviction that the anemic American brand of Christianity today is at fault at heart in its low view of God. The appalling ignorance, even among Christian people, he says, regarding the God in whom they profess belief is nothing short of tragic. From another vein, and a more sarcastic vein, the French atheist Voltaire once said of his generation, the Bible says God made man in his own image, and now man has returned the favor. A 20th century contemporary of ours, J.B. Phillips, says the same thing to our generation in his incisive book, Your God is Too Small. And it would be interesting to go through and unveil some of the caricatures of God that he deals with from that book in our generation. But just to name them, some of the modern unreal gods he pictures are the resident policeman, the parental hangover, the grand old man, the meek and the mild, the managing director, the perennial grievance, the pale-faced Galilean, and etc., etc. All caricatures of God because they are all less than what God is. And I believe that's why Tozier went on to say in his book, it is my opinion that the Christian conception of God, current in these middle years of the 20th century, is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. On a more positive side, he stated, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, 
but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect or ignoble thoughts about God. Let me read that again. Sozier says, I believe that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. And probably that is why in Psalm 50, for example, and verse 21 we read God's word, that thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. In that whole 50th chapter of the Psalms where he is chiding and making it known that he as a wrathful God is going to bring vengeance, he says, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Now that drives us to the question, then, what is God like? And yet, when you begin your search on that subject, in the things around you, you find at the very outset that the question cannot be answered, except to say that God is not like anything. That is, he is not exactly like anything or anyone. When we try to imagine what God is like, we must of necessity use that which God is not like as the raw materials for our minds to visualize and to work on, and thus whatever we visualize God to be, he is not, for we have constructed our image out of that which he has made, and what he has made is not God. And if we insist on trying to imagine him, we end up with an idol. Not an idol made with hands, but an idol made with thoughts. And an idol made with thoughts is just as offensive to God as an idol made with hands. You see, when we are left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can handle him, where we can use him. Or it becomes somewhat uncomfortable for mankind to have a God that he cannot in some measure control, at least at first blush it seems that way. And that's exactly why Isaiah rises to the occasion in the 40th chapter, verses 18 to 21, to make this statement. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth and casteth an image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. And he seeks a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that shall not be moved. 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? And in that last statement, hath it not been told you, we have the answer to the thing that we're looking for. What is God like? God is not like anything that you see or touch or taste or smell. God is not known by discovery. God is only known by revelation. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon many years ago, said this, The strange beings that populate the world of mythology and superstition are not pure creations of fancy. The imagination created them by taking the ordinary inhabitants of earth and air and sea and extending their familiar forms beyond their normal boundaries. Their prototypes can always be identified. They are like something we already know, and that's the way it is with the gods that men have made. Their prototypes can always be identified. They are like something we already know. So that when Jesus Christ came into the earth scene, they had gods, for example, that were half man and half horse. Something that they already knew, elaborated, extended, and conjoined with something else to create a creature which was unlike anything specifically, but was the extension of that which they already knew, and they called that God. And we haven't gotten away from that today. Man constantly takes that which may be known of God and suppresses it and creates a God of his own making. So that today, in the musical world, we have the same type of thing. We have a Jesus Christ superstar in which the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, is completely distorted and practically made to be the villain in a story in which Judas becomes the hero and along with Mary. I might mention to you in passing, by the way, for those of you that are familiar with Jeff Moody, who has written several books and is pastor down in, I believe, West Palm Beach in Florida. He has a tape out called Jesus Christ Superstar. And it's the very best thing I've ever heard. He listened to the thing 20 times, and for that my hat goes off to him. I could never do it. But he listened to it 20 times before he made any evaluation. Then he preached his evaluation to the young people of his area. But man will continue to come up with this kind of thing. Man will suppress that which may be known of God to his own detriment. So it's uncanny how the fact that no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So that which may be known of God, what does mankind do? He twists it and corrupts it so he can besmirch the image of God that man is able to see so that he can be changed. But God says, you will not discover what he is like. It's not by human discovery, and that should be something that we're already aware of in the light of what we've already talked about in special revelation. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, you do not know by experience the things of God. You only know the things of God because the Spirit of God, who alone knows the things of God, took the things of God and conjoined them with word forms, which word forms false as we speak. No man by human discovery finds out God. And that's why Job, in the 11th chapter, in the 7th and 8th verse, says this, Can you, by searching, find out God? And the obvious answer is no. Can you find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What can you do? Deeper than hell. What can you know? So the answer of the Bible to Job's question of knowing God and what he is like is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to John in the first chapter in the 18th verse. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has exegeted him. He has led him out. He has expounded him. And then Jesus himself made the statement, Neither knoweth any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So there's no revelation of the Father but through the Son. And bearing right on that same point, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus God manifest in the flesh. And he gives a very majestic description of him in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. But in this final age, he has spoken to us in the Son, whom he has made heir to the whole universe and through whom he created all orders of existence. The Son, who is the effulgence of God's splendor, and the stamp of God's very being, and sustains the universe by his word of power. Listen again to Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Christ is the exact likeness of the unseen God. He existed before God made anything at all, and in fact, Christ himself is the creator who made everything in heaven and earth the things we can see and the things we can't. The spirit world with its kings and kingdoms, its rulers and authorities, all were made by Christ for his own use and glory. He is before all else began, and it is his power that holds everything together. Tremendous statement. So we see then that Jesus Christ both is the revelation of God and speaks the revelation of God. Summarize it. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, and he speaks the revelation of God. That is, he is the revelation of God in his matchless person, and he speaks the revelation of God in his mighty proclamation. And this is why we say that if anyone would know what God is like, then let him look at Jesus Christ. 
in his life and let him listen to him in his word. For there is no God that can ever be known by anybody except the God that is seen in Jesus Christ. Now this is why I have given several years of my life, together with several others who have given more, to try to bring to our people the importance of studying the life of Jesus Christ. On several occasions already in our remarks, among other books that I have mentioned, I have mentioned The Life of Christ in Stereo by Johnston Cheney. The first time in 2,000 years of church history where the four Gospels have been woven together in one consecutive chronological account without leaving anything out or adding anything in. And the reason why I was personally interested in that work is because I believe that we have spent entirely too little time on the life of Christ. We have given ourselves to the death of Christ. If you'll look at contemporary evangelicalism, you'll find that to a large extent it is an exposition of the death of Christ. And yet if you'll stop to think about it for a moment, studying the death of Christ will never cause a Christian to grow one fraction of an inch. For the death of Christ is not a growth message, it's a birth message. And once you've been born, you don't need to be born and born and born and born and born. Once you've been born, what you need is growth, and it was the life of Christ, the exposition of what God is like, that was given to man for growth. And all you need to do to check this out is look at a contemporary hymnal and see how many hymns have been written on the death of Christ and how many hymns have been written on the life of Christ. We are, to a large extent, a death-conscious people. Christ was the apex of revelation in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Everything before Christ was preparatory for him. Everything that was after Christ was explanatory of him. He is the apex of revelation. The epistles were not greater revelation than the gospel. The epistles were an elaboration of the revelation that Christ gave in his life. By the way, there is no area of theology about which Jesus Christ did not speak. He did not elaborate all that he had to say. He said the spirit of truth would lead you into that. But he spoke in every area of theology. And the thing that makes Christ the apex of revelation is not only that he spoke it, but he was it. For he is the only being that ever lived on earth that perfectly mirrored in his life what he spoke with his lips. And that's why he becomes the perfect pattern for every believer to follow. Now, with that kind of a background, let's take some of the things that are said concerning Jesus Christ, who is the 
exegesis of God. One thing that he said is found in John 4.24 about his nature. One of the most basic things that Jesus taught about the being of God is that God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In essence, our Lord is saying that that which is real, that which is ultimate, is not material. God is not material. And that's why God commanded Moses, Thou shalt not make unto thee any carved image, Exodus 20, verse 4, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And we strive like everything to find something today whereby we can make some kind of a picture or icon or idol. But unfortunately for Solomon and all the rest of us, there was not the slightest clue left as to what Jesus Christ looked like. Why? I think for very good reason. He didn't want you to think basically of him materially. For God is not essentially material. God is spirit. And the greater our maturity in Christ becomes, the less attracted we will be to that which is essentially material about God, and the more satisfied we will become with the essence of God, namely the very attributes of God. As a child, we need things we can touch and taste and smell and feel. As we grow, we find greater satisfaction in things that are not necessarily even tangent to us, but which we can plug into our minds and profit by. Again, that's why Isaiah chided the image makers. To whom then will you liken God, he said? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? There isn't any. God is prior to and independent of all created things. All material things, Hebrews 11.3 says, came into being by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made out of things which do appear. God thus is not limited to a body. He is not tied to material things. God is spirit. Those thus who would worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, this should provide some insights for us for today. We live in a day in which materialism seems to be the measure of all things. You face that problem, and I face it. I don't know of any more nagging problem that I have to constantly examine my heart about 
than the encroaching materialism on my life. Things hold a stranglehold on us. Very interesting in the children of God the other day who take such a strong viewpoint on forsaking everything that the hierarchy lives pretty nice. So that the peons steal from their parents to bring to them so that they can live quite well. Even among those who put the strongest emphasis on having nothing, the test of when you've really arrived or not becomes almost how much you have. He's working its way back on it. Men tend to live for the present. We tend to be pretty much impressed by things, even when we say we don't want to be. The adults would like to look at the young people and say they are the now generation. The fact of the matter is that we are all today the now generation. That is, we tend to be the people who live for the present. We tend to sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate, much like Esau. We are ready to forego a spiritual birthright for the what seems to be apparent necessity of a pot of porridge right now. So live for the present. Let me try to exemplify that. I, on occasions, have spoken on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, running the race to a group. In that series, I have a message entitled, Running Demands Reducing and go through various illustrations of the value of jogging, trimming off pounds, and so on and so forth, and what this does for you, all for the purpose of getting to the spiritual point that we ought to lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And it's the most disillusioning thing to come to the end of a message like that when you have used this, what you feel is a graphic, vivid illustration of the need to reduce if you're going to really run for Jesus Christ to get the spiritual point across and then to have people come up afterwards and make the tremendous decision that they're going to start jogging. Miss the whole point. It's much easier to get across to people the need to reduce physically and live longer than it is to reduce spiritually and live more effectively. Or, let me put it another way. When I listen to uh, Christians and myself talk about someone having their needs supplied by the Lord, invariably they are making reference to physical and material needs. Now, not in a group like this because you're kind of a special group. It's the ones out there I'm talking about. How rarely do those people out there today really become concerned about spiritual needs? So when you come to a prayer meeting, what is really prayed about? Well, Aunt Jenny's sore toe, and somebody else is having their appendix out, and so on and so forth. Most often, we're absorbed with the material thing. And that's the way we are in babyhood. If, in this affluent age, Christians really believe that spiritual things 
were of ultimate importance, they would find themselves following this axiom in Matthew 6, 19-21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where neither thieves nor inflation break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, catch it, there will your heart be also. What a tremendous principle. Where your treasure is, there by all means your heart will be. Now, the Lord is not trying to come along and whop you aside of the head and beat you down with this statement. He's simply setting before you a truth that you can't get away from. Try as you may. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I remember when I was in the Navy, my office used to be on one end of the administration building on the top floor, and a CO's office was on the other end, and I'd go back and forth and pass the XO's office on the way going through, and he would usually be sitting there with a Wall Street Journal in his hands and his feet up on his desk reading the Wall Street Journal, day after day. I used to look at that and I think, I don't understand how anybody could read such boring literature so often. Uh, this long column of figures, day after day after day, what a boring diet. And then one day when I became wealthy and I invested in free mutual funds, which have all proceeded to go down ever since I got into them, <laughs> I understood why he was reading the Wall Street Journal. Because my reading habits changed. Before that, I read the front page, the sports page, and that was it. Now I read three pages. The front page, the sports page, and the mutual fund column. And I watch my treasure disintegrate. <laughs> now why do I read that? Because I've got treasure there. And where my treasure is, try as I may, I can't avoid it, my heart is. And I can even say to myself, I'm not going to read that dumb thing today, but I think about, what did it say? I wonder if it went up or down today. You can't get away from it. Can't get away from it. Now, does that mean you never go into the stock market? I don't think that's what God is saying here. I think he's just saying it's the truth. So plug it in and let it govern you. Now check yourself on this for a moment. We're still talking about the attributes of God, by the way. We're trying to bring them down where we live. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How often have you looked at someone who has a lovely home, two fine cars, maybe three, a swimming pool, camper, cabin cruiser, skidoo, if you're up north, etc., 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 and you came out with this statement, my, how God has blessed you. On the basis of what principles did you make that judgment? 
Since when is the blessing of God judged by material prosperity? If that is the principle, then the most blessed of God in America are the Mafia. For they are certainly the most materially prosperous people in America. You see, how different is that kind of a judgment from that of the early apostles and post-apostolic fathers who gladly sacrificed all that they had, including their very lives, which they allowed to be burned at the stake while they sang praises to their great God and King. Or how different is this contemporary judgment from the judgment of the Son of Man himself who said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever would save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. When I was a small boy in Sunday school, they had a chorus that went like this. With eternity's values in view, Lord. With eternity's values in view. May I do each day's work for Jesus with eternity's values in view. Now, if any of us has a lingering ray of hope for this earth, and material things. Let him contemplate the stark reality that nuclear fission has demonstrated the destructibility of matter. Merrill Tenney graphically stated, one nervous finger on the wrong switch could precipitate an atomic war which would not simply lay the world in ruins as the barbarians sacked and burned Rome and its sister cities but would dissolve it in fire and death, leaving only a desert so radioactive that no living thing could survive. The scientific inventiveness which has provided men with control over the powers of nature has accelerated his economic, intellectual, and social development, but in what direction will it take him? Is he only moving faster toward destruction? And it is just such a destruction which the scriptures predict for this material planet. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. That is, the largest thing, the macrocosm, and the smallest thing, the microcosm shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are in it shall be burned up, every last one of them, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. This certainly should have something to say to us who find ourselves inextricably engaged in the stockpiling of material things. It ought to be very practical to us when I walk down by the new car showroom 
and I use that stupid kind of logic as I look at the Plymouth Duster with the beautiful blonde-haired girl sitting on the hood, which I never have really been able to figure out the connection, <coughs> technically. And I look at it and I say, my car is a year old, and it wouldn't really be good sense to keep it another year, because after all, I need a reliable car, and something might well go wrong with it, so I really should get a new one. Besides, it's better if you trade every two years. I don't know where we ever got that lie from, because anybody that's really honest knows that you'll save money if you keep it ten years and repair it. But you see, the honest fact is, I want a new car. That's the honest fact. And I appreciated what Billy Graham said at Explo at the lunch when he said, my wife and I have been examining recently what level of hotel ought we to stay in when we come to town? What level of transportation ought we to use? You see, this is not an opportunity for us to judge other people. That's not the point of it. We each stand before our own God. But God says, I'm putting a mind renewer in there for you, for you to think about. There are no pockets in shrouds. You will take nothing with you. It's all going to burn behind you. There's only one way that you can get anything up there, and that's to send it ahead in the form of spiritual investment. I conclude with a statement that Spurgeon once made that I think is very graphic. He was invited by one of his parishioners to go and visit a lovely mansion of a home that this member of his church had just built. And as he went through it, he could not help but be just amazed at the beauty and the intricacies of the mosaics and all the rest. The bathtub even had gold mosaic in it. Spurgeon said it was unbelievably beautiful and expensive. Then we got out in front of the house, and the man with some degree of obvious pride said to him, well, what do you think about it? Spurgeon said, what do you say at a time like that? I'm not stupid. I can see how nice it is. But his response was this. These are the kind of things that make dying hard. One of the reasons it's going to be so hard for so many of us to die is not because we don't know Jesus Christ is on the other side, but it's because we've made most of our investment here and so little of it there. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. You can't change it. So dying comes hard even for a lot of Christians who have not plugged in and lived by certain truths we see in the attributes of God.